Welcome to this episode of Let's Chat. I'm your host, Chris Revel, coming at you from the Cat Cave in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, what a great episode. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, thank you for joining. Um, we've had some great guests. I think you can dig around and, and find some. I've wanted to have Benny Horowitz on this podcast, I would say, for about three or four years. So on the first hand, I'm a huge Gaslight Anthem fan. I have a distinct memory of sitting in my parents' house with my dear bud, my good bud, Shani Mo. And I was on MySpace, and a band called We're All Broken that I loved, a Jersey band, posted about this new band, the Gaslight Anthem, not new, but this new song called The 59 Sound. I hit play, and it just took over me. I fell in love with it. My friend Shani Mo, more a hip-hop guy, he's not part of the punk rock world, uh, he was really sad. He had just lost a friend of his that just passed, and it was just having a rough time. And for whatever reason, him and I just connected with that song so hard. Uh, I go way deeper into the album. I go farther back into uh, then I you know I discovered Sink or Swim all that good stuff and you know fall off their career if you're making like a top 50 records or songs in the last like 10 20 30 years Gaslight's gonna be on there but that wasn't like enough you know I love the Gaslight Anthem um, I had had a lot of mutual friends I've, I've never like I never met them or anything huge fan of the podcast called Going Off Track uh, which is now back I recommend diving uh, through their old uh, archives as well for any of those punk, uh, any of the punk rockers, uh, Stephen Smith, who used to have Stephen's Untitled Rock Show, it was him. Uh, Jonah Bear, who was a writer for the show and producer Brad. I'm so happy to say that both Stephen and Jonah are past guests from a few years back. And um, in all honesty, I really contribute a lot of my hosting style and what I've like tried to do with the podcast off of going after. Uh, Stephen Smith is one of my host idols. And I had an honor to actually get to interview him and kind of become like little friendly online. He's just a wonderful human being and so nice. I remember like I've been, I've, I know I've read like a lot of interviews. I remember reading an interview with him on Read Junk about like about hosting, about practicing and like taking it more seriously. That really changed my views. And, um, you know, around the time those two came on, that was the biggest get of the time. And it was incredible. And I'm so happy they did it. But then they started having Benny come on to guest host a lot of the Going Off Track episodes. He was a guest and he'd come on a lot. Just really connected with him. He seems like a fucking cool dude. And I think you'll get that sense that we got along pretty well here. So it was so cool. And then Going Off Track kind of just disappeared. It never ended. And I was kind of bummed. And then one day I refreshed my feed and I saw it was back. And uh, Benny is now the host. And Brad, who at one point was going to do this show, and for whatever reason never happened, Brad, if you hear this, I'm coming for you. In a good way. Not a threat. I was just so happy because it's definitely one of my favorite podcasts. So make sure you check out Going Off Track. Make sure you listen to the Gaslight Anthem. Yeah, but, you know, Benny on the surface is like, you know, a rock and roll drummer or whatever. But, like, the dude was an ensign for a minute. He, you know, he plays now. He's playing in Mercy Union. He played with Anarcho for Spoochie, which is like Chris Fair and Jeff Rosenstock. Like, he's a fucking scene kid. I've listened to enough podcasts and listened like to him, like to know him. Like some people call him like Manville Benny. Like I know a lot of that punk rock shit about him um, from listening to the podcast. So this is really crazy. So I would say this interview took me about three or four years to get to put together. A hundred percent. Thank you to Dan Shields, Dan Shields, past guest, good friend, and actually one of my groomsmen and one of my favorite human beings on the planet earth. Uh, so Dan is the merch guy for Mercy Union sometimes. He does um, some tours. And actually, I think he did a tour with the Gaslight Anthem and the Scandals. And um, Mercy Union and the Scandal share a member, Jared, who's the front man. Uh, the guitarist of the Scandal, Sean, has also been on this podcast. That's always fun. And so I know I've asked Dan several times. And I think Dan, being a very nice, respectful human being, knows you don't just, you know, 
My friend has a podcast. Will you do it? Because uh, it's shitty, especially when you're friends and in these worlds that get the waters get weird. But, you know, over the years, Dan, at some, for whatever reason, Dan being nice and I think honestly just believing that it would be a good fit. Yes, Benny to do it a couple of times, according to Dan. And I guess, um, you know, it took some time. And at one point, I was talking to Dan. He's like, yeah, I talked to Benny. He listened. I'd say, give him a reach out. He pr- he'll probably do it, maybe. And I'm like, all right, that's pretty cool. And, um, you know, when someone tells you something like that, I guess your first thought of someone's like someone that you like look up to and you like, like they like the thing you did. My first thought is just to believe this thing. Oh, Dan's lying. Dan, there's no way that Benny Horowitz ever listens to my podcast and likes it and wants to do it. Realistically, I, I don't know for, I, I'm sure he did because we have a lot of mutual friends. We've had enough people from, the, the same world uh, have kind of crossed over. So whatever. It, if you listen to the episode, I, I still kind of go back and forth. I got the feeling that he had listened and liked it enough because when we jump into this episode, we talk not about music as much as I thought. It's it's very much like a going off track episode, which is always my dream. So um, Dan Shields, uh, I think it was one of your last shows you did like um, and tore up at uh, Buffalo. Thank you. Dan. I mean, last week we had Griffin Newman from Blank Shack and the Tick, when that was just like, holy shit, I cannot believe I'm talking to this person. And then all of a sudden, Betty Horowitz is on my podcast, and I'm like, holy shit, I can't believe I'm talking to this person. So, I guess the dream for the podcast is to have more of these whole shit, I can't believe I'm talking to this person moments. And in the next couple episodes, we actually will. Before anything, I just have to say the Gaslight Anthem. Whenever I think of them, the first memory comes in my head will always be a shout out to my good friend Eric Francello. I uh, love you, buddy. If you hear this, give me a call or a text or uh, you know, no, fuck that. Return your fucking call or text. I'm just kidding. I miss you, friend. For Christmas one year, I had gotten my dad uh, tickets to Carnegie Hall because he had never been. I think that part is true. And um, they were doing a tribute to the Who. The Gaslight Anthem was one of the bands playing, but the other ones it was like um, Patti Smith. Bobby McFerrin, like it was a very uh, Husker do, Bob Mould, a lot of different types of musicians doing songs of The Who and the Gaslight was on it. And it's one of my favorite memories of like my life. It was a really special thing for my dad and I to go to that. And I'm, we still talk about it. And it was just so cool to get to meet someone for, who, who played that night and get to tell him, uh, you know, uh, shout out to my dad. Uh, he has a college radio show at, uh, the, at Wesleyan University, WESU. Uh, it is called Acoustic Blender. You can find it at Facebook anywhere you find uh, online radio shows I want to sit um, and stuff. So thanks, Dad, uh, for getting, and Mom, for getting me into music to lead to these wonderful moments. Well, so um, anyway, a little housekeeping. If you're listening to this in real time, I'm sorry if you were waiting for this yesterday. Uh, between a sick kiddo, a computer breaking, and a lack of time, I just couldn't get to it, get around to it. Uh, anyway, uh, that we have the next episode's and that, oh, I have a bunch of stuff recorded. So next Wednesday, we're going to put out another episode with Pete with, from uh, the Streetlight Manifesto with John, uh, the frontman of Folly, guest hosting. Yeah, I know. That was still like, holy shit. It's like four in a row. We're going to four of these huge episodes back to back. They're still blowing my mind. That was just another fun episode. And then after that, we'll, uh, the week after, will be Sean Colin, returning guest. Uh, we talked years back right before he was crowdfunding for the documentary A Fat Wreck. And now... That's actually on Amazon Prime you can watch. He's got another couple of docs coming out called Age of Audio, which has some heavy hitters, another one called Lifers, and that will have our first introduction to producer Will as a guest host. Ooh, that was really fun. And if you are listening to this in real time on uh, May 7th of 2020, the What Sheer Writers Club is having the second podcast listening party virtually. I was so honored to be able to present uh, last year's, or yeah, and it was a really big big deal for me. Uh, so this is actually going to be digital. It's on Zoom. Uh, there's an Eventbrite. It's just eventbrite.com slash 
What's Your Writers Club. Uh, you can find everything on our Facebook. We'll put all the links in there and whatnot. So I'll be one of the podcasters, some of the past guests of the uh, Rhode Island area. If you're a fellow podcaster in the area, make sure you join our Podcasters of Rhode Island and Beyond Facebook page. I also want to give a huge shout out to my Avengers team. We got producer Brianna Benjamin, Will Forcer, Chris Ball, Max Baines, Nate Peavy. Can't do it without you. Love you guys. Big shout out to Jeff, who also played in Folly and a past guest and another friend who uh, edited this episode of the next few. Uh, really helped me out. And just in case I didn't say thank you enough to Dan Shields via text message, phone calls, emails, and house parties, uh, house party app. Thank you, God, Dan Shields. I, I can't thank you enough. And honestly, Benny, thank you to Benny for just being so open and cool and such a nice person and um, and a good dad, which I know don't mean a lot to him. Oh, he's also a guest on uh, Best Advice Ever on uh, Andrew Hall's Laughing and Disbelief YouTube channel. You can check that out. You know, you can find us on at Let's Chad Podcast on all the things. And we will be having some more announcements. The website is almost ready. Hopefully some more merch coming up soon. We're going to be having some more guest hosts. We'll be doing more cross platforms, so look out for some video coming up. And a huge thank you to Jackson Cantrell, who's a radio reporter and podcast producer. We had met at the What Cheer Writers Club a few months back at a podcast event. I think it was a meetup. It was really fun. Really got along. And then I saw him post Podcasters of Rhode Island and Beyond Facebook page about a mastermind through WBRU that he was a part of. I went to that. Learned a fuck ton, by the way. Uh, so... You know, I did the old thing. You find the person who's doing what you want to do and you ask them for their time. Generally, you ask them to buy him a beer or a coffee. Couldn't do that for obvious reasons. So what he was still nice enough to give me an hour of his time on Zoom and let me pick his brain. And, you know, I, I really appreciate that, Jackson. That's really cool. Check out his site. Good, you know, support good people doing the good work. Uh, anyway, I'm going to stop rambling. Let's get to it. To my books, down the said goodbye to a few summer did another thing though i mean it is with the storytelling and stuff it's a matter of time before someone i know from like the past is just like hey uh that didn't happen like that at all you know or something like that it hasn't happened yet but i feel like it's coming you know oh yeah and it's funny because like what all the knowledge we know of like memory is pretty much our memory is pretty inaccurate in general like our memories are more tied to emotions than anything it's like i've like have to deal that to myself and be like did that so i'm always like take everything i say with like a grain of salt because <laughs> yeah like, i've thought about that differently now for a long time after i heard an episode of uh malcolm gladwell's revisionist history which i've listened to a few times so i even remember the name and the episode was called free brian williams and it was about you know brian williams formerly of nbc i don't know if he got a job again but oh, when, I know exactly what you know, you're talking about. Yeah, when he sort of falsely said that he was inside of a helicopter that got attacked in Iraq, when in actuality he was in Iraq covering it, but he wasn't in the actual helicopter. And it made the point on what you're saying um, that, that you know, a lapse in memory and him filling in the blanks mixed with ego and bravado actually led to him believing the story he was telling. So... 
it wasn't like he was going and, and intentionally lying. It was that after so many years and after so many retails mixed with being an entertainer kind of guy and trying to impress people, it, it wound up that story. And by the time he was saying it in full, it was so far from where he started, but it wasn't like he was maliciously lying to people. And it used this one uh, study as um, the benchmark for it, where I guess one of the largest memory studies was conducted post 9-11. Yep. Yeah. And they took a really large group of people and, you know, uh, asked what their flashbulb memory was for 9-11, like where they were, who they were with. Uh, what their day was like, and then followed up with the same people year after year for 10 years. And I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was a pretty large number, over half, who by the end, their story was, was way off from from the story that started. And And they say the reason is the farther you get away from it, you use your own understanding of people in the world to fill in the blanks. So if your memory forgets something, you use assumption to fill it in on something that seems right. And then, you know, you just keep piecing the story back together. And by a certain point, it might not be what it was. Uh, so I truly believe in that. And I think like, you know, I guess if anyone is like a storyteller and likes to tell stories, you should maybe give them like a grace period or a little bit, you know, a little bit of grace to, you know, for the details, I suppose. Um, oh, absolutely! But, but I try hard. I did do another podcast fairly recently, where the guy was asking me a lot about like the old New Jersey scene. Oh, this was I the was... scene. Yeah, yeah. That was I, I listened to those episodes. They were great. It was okay. A, it made me yeah. think of that because you came on because of the two parter. The second part, you like literally came on was like, I promise I'm not lying. I just this yeah. is how I remember it. That I is that Doyle? I think his name is. Uh, yes. I, Yes, yes. That's a really yeah. good podcast. I really yeah, like your episodes fun. a lot, too. And it was because I remembered this one story about when I was promoting shows with E-Town Concrete. And I really sat back that night, and I was like, dude, that was 1995. I'm like, and some of these details don't make a whole lot of sense. You know, like, uh, so, I'm, I, yeah, I came on part two and just be like, hey, full disclosure, I might have been bullshitting you, but I, I promise it was uh, a mistake. Have you watched The Mind Explained on Netflix? I haven't. Uh, if you, from listening to you on like various podcasts and stuff, and uh, one of the things that like really drew me to you, like uh, I mean, obvious, I'm sure you get it, like this a lot. Obviously, I'm a huge Gaslight Anthem fan, but like it was when you started going on uh, going off track. I was like, you have a similar like a real intellectual curiosity from like talking with you hearing you you would love it but they do a whole episode about memory and they quote that 9-11 story and oh, about, cool. and they it's it's one of the rare things that's like it's really informative and like you learn a lot but it's actually entertaining as well so it could like you could show it in school but it's actually good the the psychedelics one is i think my favorite episode it's like a six-part episode i think that's my, my the best one of all of them but that's some, interesting yeah i'd like to look into that anyway because a couple people I trust have sort of touted the merits of like microdosing. Uh, yeah. I, I've never tried. I've never really, I had some, some people close to me and like family and stuff who had some not so great times with psychedelics. And I kind of have always been under the assumption I have the wrong kind of brain for it. But 
as I get older, I, I, I'm like more open to the idea. You know, every once in a while I'll pop on some Timothy Leary and try yeah. to, you know, like, you know, I, 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 I like the... I like the fundamental concept of breaking down some of those walls that exist. I just maybe don't trust my own mind to navigate it very well, you know. Well, and it's funny that you say that because um, so there. Uh, this is like this is one of those things I fucking obsess over and could talk about for hours. So uh, I might have opened Pandora's box. So one of the I love it. Uh, I so I had I had um, post traumatic stress and then I ended up falling into doing uh, EMDR therapy, which is eye movement yeah. And processing. Yeah, I know I of like, it. Okay, I think I feel like I missed the letter. But anyway, um, EMDR therapy, meditation, hypnosis, and uh, hallucinogenics all do the same thing. So the only the only the, huh. mi- microdosing's fantastic. The only downside of it as of right now is there's not enough research to show that there's long term effects. So it does work. We just there's not just that's because of lack of research. But you can get the exact and they actually explained this very well in the mind explained. So you can get the exact same experiences or similar uh, therapeutic experiences through MDR therapy without actually having to do the drug itself. And it's fucking crazy because like so what is it what is it physiologically that all four of those things are doing? It accesses the uh, subconscious. And when you like kind of get down the rabbit hole, there's a whole lot we don't know. And if you really want some fun, you can look up the Iceman. He's, um, his name is Wim Hof. He's this okay. dude from, I want to say Iceland. And his, I think his wife died or something. So he basically discovered, uh, he's a skeptic as well. So he discovered that you could change your body temperature by your breath control. And so, mm. and then he submits himself to scientific research all over the world. And then everyone's like, all right, well, obviously this is an anomaly. There's no way this is possible. And he's like, bullshit. I'll take, and now he yeah, takes, yeah. he takes people and teaches them. So he has the world record for swimming under ice. He climbs Mount Everest in shorts. Uh, he's, okay. there's just, there's so much to the subconscious. Like I know with all the stuff, the diometrotripothene and all the chemical and all that shit. So like there's the way they explain it in the mind explain is like basically their brain, Think of like your brain, uh, your neurons and stuff as like a ski, a ski slope, and then your thoughts kind of get kept stuck in a pattern. And when yeah. you can get get into there with the um, like with any of those things we mentioned before, like meditate, whatever, with the subconscious and like like a good hypnotist can like do the installments. You're basically able to like put a fresh powder of snow over those thoughts. So it's like yeah, almost yeah, yeah. like a, a and there there's some limitations. It doesn't work for people with schizophrenia. And the biggest thing of it is it doesn't work if you don't believe it's going to work. So even the field is split on it. And, right, I see. Yeah. And I'm a skeptic, and I thought all this stuff was bullshit. I literally fell into it, but I just ended up really connecting with this therapist. And I was like, fuck it, we'll try it. And then, I mean, I, I, I'm sure you heard, people have heard me say, I had PTSD. I literally don't have it anymore. Because Within a year, That's great. It, it was wow. gone. It's, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, I, I had a therapist recommend it for, um, for some reason, I have sort of an irrational fear of elevators. Mm. Like, I really don't like them. Uh, I really don't like, like, MRI machines. I don't like well, there's something terrible. about, yeah, being closed in and, and um, that. But but there's, like, a, a rationality to my fear, too, because I, I won't just go into any elevator and be afraid. Like, if I'm in, like, a brand-new building uh, and it's, like, a big, shiny new elevator and I'm, like, by myself, I don't even have, like, a, a touch of fear. You know what I mean? I don't even mm. think twice about it. I live in a city, you know? I, I have to do it all the time. Yeah. But if I if I'm in like New York City, in like one of those old ass buildings with 
you know, the old steel elevators that click tight and it's only the cement shaft and like there's a bunch of people in it or something. I'm like fucking mortified, you know, I, I can't stand it. I've even to the point that I've run out of them, you know what I mean? Just like, like, nah, nah, like I'll walk nine stories. Like I don't give a shit. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so, so I, I did have a therapist at one point recommend, uh, EMDR for that to, to as basically a tool, you know, in that moment to be able to control my breathing or bring me to a certain place that'll let me navigate that situation well. Cause I found myself starting to just like take the stairs all the time. You know, I'd be like, Oh, I'll meet you on the sixth floor. And you know, it'd be like a thing. I'm like, I don't care. This is good. Yeah. I'm getting good shape anyway, you know? Sure. Um, but then, you know, like then every time you actually have to take one, it's a much more terrifying experience if you've been avoiding them. So, you know, I, I I'd prefer to get over it rather than avoid it. Uh, so, so it was recommended to me for that. You think it could work for something like that? Yeah, so I, this one of the, the craziest thing about the brain is a that, that we don't know much. Um, this is I'm going to change some things around so I'm not like violating HIPAA. But I had worked with this client who had like a really, really uh, had a, a rational fear of uh, of cats, and oh, okay. um, just you know it made no sense. They're perfectly. You would, you know, talk. They would like, and they'd, they'd be like, "I just don't." Well, get I mean, why. cats are fucking evil, man. But we, yeah. we can get into another. No, oh, yeah, but like, like, like <laughs> the, the, the the thing I'm referring, it wasn't cats. I'm just trying to change it for for the. I person. see. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Right. But, but just just but something that like I mean, yeah. just keep it cats. Like to like you know gotcha. panic attack yeah. level, and they couldn't understand it. And uh, this is through someone, uh, my the therapist I work with at my job, and through EMDR therapy. And EMDR therapy is very similar to dreams. It doesn't really make any logical sense. Uh, it's like okay. a lot of right, wiring pair. So essentially, it had turned out with this particular person that they had blocked out this memory, this severe trauma from their whole years and years. They used to get the shit kicked out of them by their mother. Like their mother would come in drunk, just beat the shit out of them. Yeah. And, um, one of the memories that came to them in the EMDR therapy, it's very much like a flashback as I like get through the trauma was them getting beat up, getting the shit kicked out of them. Like literally like being kicked in like the back by their mom, reaching uh, underneath the couch and the cat running over their hand. And again, right. makes wow. no sense. But so what was happening in neurologically speaking is the, of, and I, maybe I'm getting this wrong is the best I can of getting it right. Is that um, every time they, they were seeing a cat, the, the wiring would basically shooting to a trauma that they had buried and blocked out. And it, and that's, crazy. What's so, and that's the shit that's so that's weird because crazy. like, cause the, the, the thinking is always like one and two will makes one and like one and one makes two. But like with the EMDR therapy, man, it's like, it's like hallucinating. It's like very much like being in a dream. Like I've had these like visions of like traveling, like a lot of, I don't know. I've had these like really weird, really odd borderline spiritual, I guess you can call them like, spiritual experiences sure. yeah uh, like um, i don't know it's some strange stuff because like so the, i had started going so my wife had almost um died given birth to, almost died during childbirth so wow. that like led uh, you know fucking sucked and led to some ptsd and whatnot and like we would ha go in and then like we do all this stuff and like i'd have these like i guess called visions of like riding through new york city with the ninja turtles like some fun shit and all of a sudden right. i'm like why do i feel better and he my, my therapist the man he's like I don't know. We don't ask. You know what? He's like, he, yeah, you know, right. he always goes, the placebo effect is a placebo effect. Let's just. Somewhere in your subconscious, the Ninja Turtles make you feel good. 
Yeah, I mean, I, at least that's for it. me, it turned out that everything was like pop culture related because that's just the stuff I tend to. I can see that. Do. Yeah, I, I mean, I can see my brain going to the, the similar. Yeah, place. it's like, it's fucking be, weird. Being like being like some uh, like one of the fit, good-looking jocks in like an '80s movie or something. <laughs> yep. You know, that might be where my subconscious goes, like to feel good. I don't know. It's so that's really interesting, though. Yeah, and you know, uh, uh, yeah, I would, I would. I definitely do think it's a spiritual experience, though, in the way that, um, I mean, after a certain point and after uh, a certain level of search, if you're not finding what you need from, you know, the physically tangible spiritual things like available to you, which I think is a problem for a lot of people a certain age or younger right now. I mean, we've grown up in a time where, like, organized religion has been like, you know, either muted or, uh, hijacked. Yeah. Hijacked is colored, you know, like there's a whole generation of people that are, you know, while they're imagining some, you know, a grandparent telling them to go to church, they hear on the other side about scandals and, you know, and any number of things that might turn you off from that path. And you need, you know, a certain level of like, true faith to actually go into that thing and do it correctly. So if you're shaken from the start, it's pretty hard. So I think people are obviously looking for like alternative ways. And personally, you know, I, I, it's almost like the only way left to look Mm. is like is inside and inside the subconscious and whatever the fuck is going on in here. And actually like listening to that voice that's been telling me for, years and years and years that there's like something else going on here, something else at work. You know, there's, it's almost as if I tried, I've been, basically I got terrified of like the infinite blackness when I was like 11 years old. And I've just been trying to convince myself that that's the truth and that's okay. And to be like, okay with it, you know, like, uh, and you know, I've come to like a almost recent realization that like, you know, maybe the fact that there's like a part of my subconscious that's always like telling me this is incorrect by giving me the terror and fear uh, connected to it, that that you need to like follow that impulse. Mm. You know, if I really if I really thought it was real and I knew it was real, I, I'm a pretty accepting and moving on person. You know what I mean? Like I, I do have that capability. But there's always been something more nagging at me, like like there's something else going at, going on or there's something else at work. And, uh, yeah, I do feel like I had a very funky few years, and uh, I feel like it's time for one of those, like, like spiritual reckonings. I almost, like, need it, you know? Oh, man, I... I was such an atheist for so long and so against all these things and that it's so weird for me to talk like this. And one of the the funniest things I had a client say this to me one time when I was running one of the IOP groups is that we were talking about like Buddhism and stuff. And this one guy like peeks at when I'm like running like IOP groups, which is like for like people in recovery for like drugs and alcohol. Oh, uh, okay. I always, What's that uh, stand for? Uh, intensive outpatient. So it's like group, oh, group okay. therapy essentially. Yeah. yeah uh, like I'm always, one of the things I always talk about is like I, one of my, 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 uh, like my go-tos it's like when you're coming into recovery it's like you either have to kind of really lean into the spirituality and if that's not for you it's really important to learn to the neuroscience and i'll never forget this one dude chimed this one guy chimed in and he was just like well actually uh 
it's it's actually really important to embrace both of them. And uh, really, all science yeah. is doing right now is just kind of proving what the Buddha said six six thousand years ago. And I'm uh, just like, right. I yeah. literally, dude, my jaw dropped. I was like, oh my god. Which I don't. Know, did you happen to watch The Good Place? I feel like they really nailed it. Like they really, really. I had such a. I was so moved by that final episode. I was, that like it it, it kind of hammered it home. It's just. It's this weird thing. You just got to get used to that living in the. Um, actually, I'm asking this: Did you grow up with like a lot of death, or like in your in your growing up, or like a lot of trauma or anything like that? Uh, not not like early early on. Um, it was like fairly normal at first, and then it kind of like yeah, the the, the rug sort of got pulled out. And, and I think like the you know the the more and more I think about it, I think like some of the things I deal with with that are like actually just like my being rather than like something that acutely happened. Cause mm. I can go, I can go pretty far back and find myself like, you know, a little off the beaten path, you know, uh, finding a way to like isolate myself, um, and feeling safer in that situation for whatever reason, uh, feeling out of sync with the things going around me. Like that's been a reality for, for quite a long time where, where I've almost stopped like searching for the answer to that because, you know, there's also a part of it that like, what difference does it make? Um, and you that sounds really... like what, that's like what monks do essentially too, though, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's part of it. Like, but I think it's interesting what you said about science. Cause I, I've come to the same point. I mean, like, uh, I quite like science and I oh, really am fascinated with like, especially like the functions of the mind and the functions of people and society. Those are probably the things that interest me the most. And the more and more and more I look into it and come out of the other end, I have like a whole lot of, um, it's almost like the science is the mass of the world, you know, like mm. just because you can tell me, the exact chemical composition of the air in front of me and exactly physiologically how my body is ingesting it and doing it correctly or incorrectly and what's happening outside of it. Like all that's fine and good, but it still has never even come close to telling me why, you and know, guess, it's, yeah. And I guess humans like, like, at we, all. Absolutely. And, and, and cause like humans too, like we don't connect with data. We connect with stories. Like, are you a Brene right. Brown? Are you a Brene Brown fan at all? No. Oh man, you're gonna you're about to become a Bernaniac if you ever look into her. She is like okay. the perfect <laughs> mixture. She's this like Midwestern Texas woman. So she's a PhD in social work. She's a researcher. She's like studied shame, and so but she also happens to be like a really good storyteller. And. Right. She could be, she's like one step away from woo woo world, which I fucking despise. So she's like Tony Robbins, <laughs> but with the scientific, but she actually is reporting on, re the way I like to think of her is like, she did the research and then she's telling you a story of the research. She, she, cool. uh, she, ha she got famous from a Ted talk. She's got like a Netflix special and stuff, but like she researched shame and oh my God, like people, she's incredible, but uh, she talks about all this stuff, but she seems to be that perfect ground of, like, taking the scientific data and then taking the story to wrap around with it to, for, like, someone like me to, like, connect to it emotionally and to, like, really process it. It's, uh, yeah. it, it's, she's got a podcast, too, and it's a real game changer, because I'm not, like, a self-helpy kind of guy, but for some reason, she's able to, I don't know, maybe because she has enough of her foot in that science background, like, I, I'm sure, 
I feel like from listening to you um, on various podcasts, we have that in common too. Or like, because I'm very much like a science person, but some of uh, and I was very when I was younger, very more extreme in my atheism. But some of those yeah. people turn like alt right and like straight up like yeah. Nazis. And so like I needed to maybe like kind of tone that down a little bit. So it's nice to have someone else to be like, oh, okay, maybe I need to listen to some other things as well. Yeah, like, yeah. Well, yeah. It got it got extremely. I, I found atheism got really dogmatic. You know, in the same exact way, it was like, you know, because I I don't totally reject the functions of religion at their core. You know, every one of these major religions has hundreds of pages of things that are talking exactly what we're talking about. Even Judeo-Christianity has answers to a lot of these things that we need. And it's like people who, you know, who hijacked it incorrectly, you know, that that took it in these ways to find the things they needed to find. Um, wait, when I just got into that, I totally got sidetracked because <laughs> something weird happened outside. How did we just get into that? I'm sorry. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> That'll be fun for me to edit, but no, that's yeah. cool. That's, 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 the, that's the stuff that makes it fun, you know? It's, um, yeah. but, oh, because actually I'm thinking back because Renee Brown talks a lot about vulnerability, which I know which is something that we were talking about, like kind of having that with the podcast, being like a podcast host. And uh, it's one of the things she discovered in the research is when you shut off shame, you shut uh, the, 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 the shame emotion, you shut, right. off jo- you shut off joy simultaneously, which is, you know, such a Buddhist huh. thing, right? There is no good. There is no bad. It's all the same side of the right. coin. So like joy and shame are literally on the same spectrum of emotion and you can't have one or the other. And when you when you shut it off, which I many men specifically do, that's where anger and violence comes from. And that leads it. It's fucking fascinating shit. Well, let, let me ask you this then. Like, so it seems like you're you've had a little bit more of like a spiritual reckoning post children. Yeah, they um, do that to you, right? You know, and especially I, I had also a very medical experience with my first child because my wife got sick at 26 weeks and my son came at 27 weeks. Oh, my god. And I goodness. spent like well over three months in a NICU in that oh, situation. My... Yeah. Um, you know, Fellow NICU parent right here. I, I feel I'm, I, there's like the, I know that the second you said that, like my daughter was in the NICU too, like not nearly as long, but there's that there's the unspoken bond. Once you said that, I was like, yep. I for it. sure, yeah, for life. But I, I definitely noticed, I like, you know, pre and post that experience, there was a level of internal biology about the body that I just, like, didn't get. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I The complexity of things and the the level of balance and the nuance going on inside of that. And, like, something about it more and more to me that like that lends itself to creation in a way i and bear in mind i'm not a creationist at all Um, but like i look at this and i'm like man this is just so perfect and complex and strange and like the idea now of somebody putting this together or even an alien civilization much smarter than us like tinkering with toys and placing it on another planet to see what happens like even that seems like just as logical now as like a man who was taken off of a cross and resurrected Mm -hmm. you know like it it, you know they're they're all possible (laughs) you know what i mean at this point oh dude i totally get it 
Yeah, yeah. Um, but I do feel like something, you know, in that experience opened my eyes a little with that. And maybe uh, one of the reasons, like, you know, if you gave the keys to the world to women, you know, I have a feeling that things would be run in a much different way. And uh, maybe it's because they have that innate sense of biology and fragility, like sort of built in and we don't, you know. And Men so can't even stronger. really have, yeah, we don't have the opportunity to see it almost unless you're a doctor or something, you know, uh, yeah. like, like in, until that point, you know, even, you know, I've said that, um, you know, I think uh, fatherhood, like full on starts somewhere, you know, around like two and a half, three months. And it's because, you know, up until then, you're sort of just like a steward. You know, mm. you're you're helping your wife who's <laughs> yeah. like, or, you know, or whoever, you're, it doesn't have to be your wife, but you're helping someone who's literally like a, a precious vessel, you know what I mean? This thing is going on, and the man's function in that situation is to service this vessel as best you can and to keep it safe and healthy. That's like every instinct. And then, you know, but they have the true biological connection going on. They're literally creating a bond that you know, is innate that we can't have yet. And then the first couple months of a baby, you know, even though I do think they can recognize uh, sound and, and feeling and, uh, you know, if you go skin on skin, like you said, you're in the NICU, I do think oh, yeah. there's a lot to that. But I think until, like, they start kind of opening their eyes and uh, actually recognizing you, as the thing that's doing that, I don't know if it was just me, but like something seems to click then where it's like, Oh, they like, they know. And I know. And now this like real biological thing is starting to kick up. But yes. I feel like I, uh, I didn't get there until, until a couple months after like my son was born. Well, you also had the NICU experience too, which it's just such a fucking whirlwind, you know, it's the, strangest it's the strangest thing especially if you're first, i only have the one but like it's our first one and it was your first one it's just like there's nothing to prepare you for the situation anyway and then that happens and it's just like yeah it's the fucking then I, I mean those I, i'll still i still remember the nurses from the like i mean we're fortunate in that sense we were only in there for eight days so my heart to go out for you for three months i have no idea how you did that but like i'm sure like anything right you don't know how you do anything you just do it yeah, yeah. I I mean, that's where I, I have grown accustomed to sort of just like responding to crisis. Um, and, and in a weird way, you know, like that's one of the things that the odd circles of life is like, you know, some of the things I had to deal with in the past that were sort of crisis situations, major disruptions to life, medical situations where you're in a hospital for a long time, like, you know, I, if there's anything I could thank for those things, it's like, I think I was ready to handle it, uh, in a, in a good way and be this kid's father and keep, keep my head around it and be supportive and be strong. And if I didn't have those experiences leading up to it, you know, I might've, I might've folded. It's a hard place, man. Yeah. I remember cause I, there was, I remember at the time my wife and I were struggling with IVF and it was um, Keith from Every Time I Die and you was yeah. a going off track episode and I couldn't listen to it because we were too in the IVF weeds. Like I just couldn't right. handle hearing that stuff then. I always meant to go back to that. So I'm, I'm, 
happy to hear your kids are doing well. But it's such a, I don't know, man, because it's so funny. Like we're talking like vulnerability and stuff. Because like for you, I know you were, you know, you were in a, a successful rock band, and like on paper, you could paint a picture of that of what some someone could look at you from afar and be like, oh, his life's perfect. I type your name into YouTube. It's you playing drums with Bruce Springsteen and, <laughs> right, and all, yeah. all this crazy stuff. And one of the things I love about the thing I connect to about podcasts so much is the the vulnerability. I don't know. You get to see the full picture because, like, sure. as obviously that must have been the most incredible experience ever playing with Bruce. But you know, that's what five minutes, and then you have the rest of the. You still have the rest of your life, and then this app, like all that stuff, it matters, and then it doesn't matter when crisis happens, like when COVID happens or your kids are in the NICU. It's like. All that shit goes out the window because when you're in the NICU, I, I guarantee I'm gonna guess no one came over to you. Oh, Benny, I just love the '59 sound. But handwritten was really your best work. You're just like, like uh, you'd be su- you'd be surprised. People get annoying in <laughs> even. We, oh, that's awesome. Like, I mean, I'm happy to get recognized, uh, but that's not the time you'd want. But it. yeah, no, it did it did happen there, <laughs> which is pretty funny. Especially drummers um, are usually the ones who don't get recognized. But I mean, what you say is interesting, and and I. You know, actually, you know, if you've listened, you know I'm a gigantic sports fan, and you, you know, know in actually, the last... yeah, I call, I actually jokingly refer to you um, to our, our our mutual buddy who hooked us up, uh, Dan Shields. I always say that you're like the punk rock Bill Simmons. I always, <laughs> I always feel like you and Bill would be friends. Just a just a side note. <laughs> well, the Boston New York thing might kill it. He's been he's been really annoying about the Brooklyn Nets recently. So like I I had to turn him off for how annoying he was. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, I'm sorry, too, I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> yeah, and old man Boston for me. But, like, there's been a couple athletes in the last... And, you know, in that world, vulnerability and showing you're human, especially for a man in that world, has always been deemed, like, incredibly, like, effeminate and not mm-hmm. part of, like, wartime male sports culture. You know what I mean? Like, it's almost military. It's And yeah. it's sort of strange. And a few players in the last few years have sort of broke down barriers and really started talking about their own anxiety and depression and mental health. And I remember one saying something where I was like, Oh my God, I've never heard anyone say this, but I felt it like so many times. And I had an experience where, you know, I've always had a sort of nagging depression, you know what I mean? A nagging insecurity about myself and a lack of confidence. Like it's been there from the get. And at some point, I had decided that like being a professional musician and living that life and going on tour was like what I wanted. And that was my dream. And I sort of wrapped my entire situation in that where I was dependent on that to make me feel good. And I was assuming every time things weren't going well and I was depressed, it was because oh, I'm not, like, where I want to be yet. Like, my life isn't where I need it to be yet. And I'm getting there. And once I get there, you know, like... And I sort of maybe, you know, pushed it off uh, as a result. And then I sort of remember a couple, like, aha moments where, you know, when you're depressed, you're not thinking straight, you know? You you think Mm -hmm. the world is crashing around you and everyone's out to get you and, you know... and you know, sometimes there's those moments of clarity inside of it. And I remember one where I'm like, you know, a being my life, like, what was my life this long ago? And what is it now? And I'm thinking, I'm like, okay, I have the job of my dreams that I actually got. Like, I'm fine with this. I'm fine with this. I have this, I have this. 
why the fuck do I still feel like this? Mm-hmm. And and it almost made it harder, you know, where it was like sort of a stunning realization that it's like, yo, it's you, motherfucker. Like, it's been you this whole time. And, you know, I, I use this sort of outside matrix to 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 settle my worth and assuming that this was going to patch it all up. And when I got there and realized I felt the same way, I think it was even even harder, you know, because uh, I had convinced myself of something else for so long. And there's like a tremendous amount of guilt, I'd imagine. Um, must be a tremendous amount of guilt, too, to be like, I mean especially coming from like the scene that we come from, like I grew up in Connecticut and that, like that punk scene and stuff, but like, right. I, and like, but I had a lot of overlap with Jersey, but like, you know, there's only a few bands that like th- various level of success, like that got to like, you were, I mean like the Gaslight Anthem, like isn't a punk band. Like my parents know who the Gaslight Anthem are. Like, <laughs> right. My dad and I actually, we, I, fun fact, we actually, I saw you play at Carnegie fucking hall. Oh, uh, you were at that? Yeah, cool. I, it was a Christmas present for my dad um, when they did the Hugh tri- the Who tribute. I took him to yeah, New York yeah. City, and oh, it was a great experience. But like, he I got I got to I got to hang out with Bobby McFerrin. It was like the oh, weirdest sight. <laughs> he was what a fucking strange experience. But like, you know, my dad's not sitting there be like, hey, you know, Benny used to uh, uh he, he you know Benny used to he was one of the seventy five thousand drummers in Ensign. Like, you know, my dad, <laughs> right, right. that doesn't connect. So, but you got to get to that level of like, you went from like a punk band to like rock band. And then the guilt of being like, hey, the punk rock guilt, because you got to eat shit yes. on both sides. And then it's yes. like, why am I not happy? I got the very, you, you got like the My Chemical Romance success, essentially. Like, you got the thing that everyone wanted and then you get it. Like, like even like talking, like listening to Bruce Springsteen on interviews, like talking about how like his coping mechanism for anxiety was just playing for four hours a night. I was like, Oh, that was like, you know, it's, 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 it's such a weird thing. Cause like on paper, you got the thing you wanted career wise, but well, I mean, it's like... it's, and it's funny with singers and stuff, especially in musicians is, you know, uh, you know, it's like almost the reason people are so talented and they're able to convey stories to you in the way they do. And they're able to connect with you in the way they do is because, they're literally dragging themselves through the human experience, you know, to the fullest extent. And someone who is really good at uh, articulating that and really good at playing guitar and doing that, it probably, you know, it wasn't a result of uh, being prom king, you know? No, exactly. (laughs) It was a result of, of, you know, pain and seclusion and finding, needing uh, a release and finding community and stuff like that. So it is strange to watch when they take the most vulnerable of people and put kind of the biggest uh, spotlight on them. And it makes a lot of sense why a lot of these people need to sort of create characters for themselves to be able to shield themselves from that, you know? Oh, yeah. Like, the only difference of, like, Kanye West and, like, a homeless person is, like, money. Like, I, I'm, not, well, I'm not being insulted. <laughs> I mean, he is really good. Oh, I don't even I don't even mean that as an insult. I mean, like oh, as, homeless guys can't rip an 808. You know? Not that you know of. Well, maybe some, maybe some. Uh, I, I've met know. some. I've worked with some pretty talented homeless people. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> it's just you know because he, he's you know he's off his meds and stuff like and stuff like that. Like he's yeah, just, like the bipolar. Yeah, yeah. But it's, uh, but the, the idea like it's like almost like a it's like a superpower too. You know, and and thankfully certain people are born in a certain era where it could actually really be beneficial for them. Like, you know, like yeah. if, if Kanye was born in 19, like 
you know, say he was like at this age now in the seventies before hip hop existed, his his life isn't what it is. He just you know, it's just, it's such a weird the way events have to work out that way. Like there's some famous story of like Bill Gates happened to like his mom or something, or he grew up in a town. He had like access to a computer before anybody else did by just by happenstance that his mom worked for a company that had a computer. Like those like little stories, which I yeah I, right right. I love those sliding doors that sliding door stuff, but like you know, but the the cool thing is like you know you got to do all that stuff with Gaslight, and then but you still keep you keep uh, you kept chucking along with the music too. Like you still held on to the punk rock roots, which I think is fucking rad. Like, uh, you know, you're still doing that. Uh, I know you were, um, with mutual, you know, Derek, I know you and Derek were doing, uh, Jagger Sharks before he had to uh, up and move to California. Now you're, uh, the, I was listening to the New Mercy Union too. It was fucking dope as shit. Oh, thanks, man. But like, appreciate that. Yeah. Is that hard to go from like tour bus to van? I mean, in, like ego you know, wise, in reality, um, you know, I had done van touring, you know, much longer than I did bus touring mm. and stuff like that. So the actual function of like day to day is like is not that strange. You know, um, I quite remember it. There are actually parts of like van touring that I sort of missed. You know, uh, I did miss kind of like driving. I missed like kind of taking yourself from A to B. Uh, I missed like actually staying in cities and really like being in that city instead of, you know, just being in some, you know, driving out of town on the bus and you wake up in a parking lot somewhere the next morning, you know, uh, it, even though the experience is great in a lot of ways, it's quite different and it's a little less immersive with like the things you're around. Like if you're on bus tours, you got to make more of like a little bit of an outward effort to connect with the places you're in because it's very easy to kind of get sucked into your whole own little world. So at first I think like nostalgia wise, I was really like, I was just booming, man. Like I was into it. Um, but there's a lot of different things at play now is, uh, I have a family which I didn't have at any point during gaslight. Um, so just leaving in general, especially young children and leaving, you know, your wife with them for extended periods of time, uh, sucks. And I really am pained by it, honestly. Um, and then, I mean, you know, and then in total honesty, like I'm not bringing home gaslight money either. So it's a little bit of a harder sell, um, as far as that's concerned, you know, cause you know, at least yeah. I come home from a month of Gaslight touring and we're all right for a little bit, you know? Yeah. Um, and then there's also a physical element. Like, I have, I'm just older, you know? Uh, and I have, like, a really bad neck that is going to be, like, a condition I'm going to need to get surgery on. It's from drums. Oh. Um, and, you know, when I'm on tour and it gets flared up, it's, like, quite painful. And it makes the experience kind of suck. Um, so like every aspect of van touring, like I still enjoy the hell out of, like, I love driving. I love listening to music. I love being into it with the guys. Uh, I love meeting new people at venues and having new conversations. I love, you know, randomly staying at somebody's house and it turning into like just the coolest experience. Like those things are worth their weight in gold, you know? Of course. Uh, and 
Uh, and I, I'll never not enjoy stuff like that and really value it. Um, but that being said, it's harder than it was uh, in a lot of ways. And like you said, I, I mean, as much as I do think it's cool, uh, there were some nights, you know, like uncertain Mercy Union dates over the last like year that I'm looking out at like 10 people at the show and in a truly like selfish way, I'm just like, yo, I'm like 39. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be good at this. You know what I mean? Like, like there like really might be like a physical capacity to when I can like play this well ever in my life. And am I selling myself short somehow by like not attempting to play in front of more people? Um, and it's a decision I made because when Gaslight first, uh, you know, slowed down, you know, I had an opportunity to just be like a drummer for hire. I really could have presented myself like that, uh, you know, basically just taking jobs, playing drums. And it was still really important to me to to be in a band and to write music with other people and write original songs and write albums because like, that's what I know how to do. And that's what I love and enjoy, but it's also hard. And, you know, I got to be real about it. Like it's, a, you know, 99% a fool's errand to like attempt to, to make something, you know, you don't get Gaslight Anthem twice, probably. You know what I mean? Like, more than likely, you don't get that twice. Uh, so, like, the intention is maybe a little different. But the actual, like, playing and the being in a room with people and writing music and writing albums and getting in the mix on tour is still, it's still great. And I still love it, you know? Uh, and even if I ever stop playing music like full time or stop playing it super seriously. I think I'd always do that. You know, uh, there'll never be a time I didn't do that. Is that like playing drums? Is that like how you get into that? Like the flow state, like, you know, like, and like, I forgot what it was. That's what the scientists call like, you know, like when an athlete hits the foul, like hits the bases loaded, they hit the home run. They did like a right. study and everyone has like a different thing. Essentially it is, it's the subconscious taking over. It all comes back to that really. But like, is like, um, like I, I, I don't know how to play music. A fan of music, I can't play it, but I love going on YouTube and watching like drum videos of like different drummers and stuff. Sure, and like, sure. um, I was just watching, I don't know, you're from, oh yeah, you're Jersey. So did you ever know the band Folly by any chance? Yeah, of course. Oh I yeah, sold, those are... uh, I, sold, I sold Arb in a van once. No fucking way! Three hundred dollars. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. And I then get... I had to give the three hundred dollars back to him because it broke down leaving New Brunswick. Funny story. Oh, that's too. Yeah, funny. I had a van in a band called The Killing Gift. I was in, which was actually the band me and Alex Rosamelia had uh, prior to Gaslight, and. Uh, you know, I was kind of the dude who did everything in that tour. So I bought in a bought a shitty van that, you know, was rigged in a hundred different ways. I have friends that can fix stuff. And the thing was just like a riding rig, you know, uh, and the band had slowed down, but I was still like paying insurance and stuff on it, you know, desperately wanted to get it away. And I heard Folly needed something. And they only, I knew this van was in rough shape, but they said they had like seven days, and it was all like East Coast and not too far. 
And I was like, yo, this van will make that. I'm like, I'm like, I wouldn't tell you to go cross country, but like this van will make that and I'll sell it to you guys for fucking $300. And Arvin and one of the other guys came down to New Brunswick. Was it a game? Maybe. I don't his, remember. That's his brother. I don't, They're actually, definitely uh, Arvin. But, yeah, yeah. That sounds um, right. They're good friends of mine. I know those cats. So I was like, that oh, sounds okay, about right. Cool. Yeah, and they, you know, you know, they, they took the van. They're like, yeah, this is fine. It'll do. They gave me the cash. And then, like, I go inside my house. And I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake, finally. Like, this van is off my hands. Like, uh, I can't, you know. And maybe five, ten minutes later, those guys call me. They're like, hey, yeah, um, we're at the gas station on Easton Ave in New Brunswick, and uh, the van won't start. I'm like, motherfucker. Oh, you know? <laughs> I'm like, these guys, I sold the van. These guys didn't get five minutes away. And oh. uh, so I actually drove to the gas station. By the time I got in there, they had gotten it started. But just because of it, I was like, yo, here's your money back. I'm like, you know, take it up to like your place, see what you can do, try to get through the tour. I'm like, if you finish the tour, like throw me the cash. And and apparently they drove it up to their house. I don't even know if they ever used it for that tour. And Arvin years later told me that it just like basically sat in a driveway up there for like years until they decided to do something with it. Oh, so that's funny. I sort of pawned it off on them maybe, but yeah, I do know those guys. That's but too I, So I have a question funny. for you because I oh, don't sure. often I don't often talk to someone in this field. So you had brought up like drums as the what the flow point that we said oh yeah so like they, there's a thing that in science scientists label it called the flow state like the, the study was state. essentially of like the the, the 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 hypothesis came from like why is it like some people like could be like at the follow line and everything is riding on it and like you know when they show the movies and all the silence goes away so essentially everyone has and that's just your subconscious essentially taking over everyone has something that does that, where you're basically, you're not thinking, you're just doing. Right, okay. Which, which made me think of Folly, because I was, recently, I was just watching um, one of the newer, I was watching Anthony drum, like a drum video of Anthony from Folly, and I was actually, I felt, I think I might have made him a little uncomfortable, because I was like, I was pretty high, and I was watching this on YouTube like, a few weeks ago, and then I just texted him an entire stream of conscious about his drum style, but I think, cool. he thought it was hilarious. But like, I'm watching yeah. him, and I, I, I've watched, you, I, I used him as an example because I thought it'd be less creepy than be like, I watched you on YouTube, but you too, like, I watched you play on YouTube too. You both have this thing, like, you're just fucking smiling, and the harder the song looks to play, the bigger your smile gets. Like, you just, look, <laughs> like, not maybe not every show, but like that feeling. So I'm wondering for you, like, I, it seems like you seem like, I think we have that similar in common, like, kind of like a very heady, intellectual, like, a thinking person. And the fact that you play drums uses so many different parts of the brain simultaneously. Yeah. Is but that where you're happiest? Back, well, when you say, like, the flow state, I think it's hard for me to get there sometimes performing live because, like of, like, yeah. because of, like, the pressure I put on myself in those situations to be, like, perfect. You know, like, that's, I, I hate fucking up. You know what I mean? Um, I really don't like it. <laughs> and and uh, so I think the most when I get into those states is like I have sort of a pool of songs uh, that I really love, that I'm so familiar with. I can play them second nature. And I think when I'm practicing at home, maybe like hit a bowl and put on like five or six to 10 or whatever of these songs that I'm just like 
super fluid with and don't have to think about, I can really get in like a very cool state when I'm doing that. You know what I mean? I'm, oh, I yeah. can feel, I can feel the physical release mixed with like, you know, cause, uh, it's one of the reasons I sing along so much with Gaslight is I'm very, very connected to melody when I play. And even when I write, I'm usually writing drums fixated on melody. So when I'm like playing a song where I really love the melody and I'm playing along to it, it is a very like full body experience for me, like heart, mind, body, you know, muscles, everything. Um, but the question I have is, you know, when I play live, especially for a long time, it was sort of my style to warm up aggressively and kind of get myself into this really sort of like furious, like hyperactive state to kind of get up there. You know, I even remember I was so different than some of the guys in Gaslight, like Brian and Alex Rosamelia couldn't be further from that. You know, they're like cool as cucumbers before they walk on. And I'd be like, jumping up and down and getting myself into this state because I wanted to be hot right off the bat, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and, but it was also nerves and it was also anxiety. Like, and this was like my way to quell anxiety was to get myself in that state, but also be so overprepared that I knew I probably wouldn't mess up. Um, and then I used to like really not feel good at the end of a show until like, I was just like sweaty and gasping for air and like, like basically full on fucking physical release, you know? And yeah. that's when I felt like I had done my job and like things were good. And I would walk off stage and literally like for 10, 15 minutes, I'd like pull my shirt off, sit in a fucking stairwell and not talk to anyone just in this like, you know, catching my breath and just like, you know, refocusing everything and kind of getting myself back out of this state. And then, you know, it's like, who knows, 11, 12 o'clock at night at that point. And then you take a shower and eat dinner and do whatever, get stoned or have a drink. And it's like, you know, middle of the morning and then rinse, repeat. And the question I have is like, when you're doing that, you must be releasing, you know, unusual amounts of serotonin, yeah, that. and things like that when you're firing on all cylinders and then I assume there's a crash similar to drugs or something of dopamine that smacks you kind of right after when you're coming down and the adrenaline's wearing off and you know sort of the clouds coming off your brain and going into that state over and over and over again for so long and that being my normal and then coming home and that completely going away. And I've talked to some other musicians about it, too. I have a feeling, you know, PTSD is the wrong word, because I just don't know it, like, clinically how you'd say it. But I do think there's a higher uh, uh, instance of depression, oh, bipolar, bet. anxiety, sure. like, all these things with musicians who tour it extensively who come home and get the plug pulled on all of that. Like, does this make sense to you? Is this, oh my God. Does, does my theory I, yeah. hold water? Cause I 100%. even talked to Jonah about like trying to run a study since he's up in a college now, you know? 
Oh, I said, yeah, no, that that totally tracks because like the feel, the feel, physiological change of your body and oh my god, yeah, I couldn't even just imagine that because like my um my she's older than me. My cousin Sarah was in a band called Unwound, but and she's like oh, yeah. I was much younger and like I remember like when I would see her like having the, like seeing her at, like family events when I would see her and stuff like that and similar same thing for her. Yeah, I mean it makes total sense. I mean, all if you really on a real granular level, if you really think about it, drugs are just chemicals and our brain is just chemicals. So I cannot right. even, yeah. I, it all, we're all, we're all just trying to alter our brain chemistry either is with like, uh, you know, cannabis or like, you know, substances that you buy illegally or legally, or just in your natural brain, it does it for you. But that, I mean, that yeah. makes total, like on a cellular level, I couldn't even imagine having like your, your dopamine have that increase. I mean, it's gotta be addicting as fuck too. It must be so hard to get away from that. Like to come home, the crash. Yeah, I that that that's a good, that would be a really interesting study. That would make so because I I think everything you're saying it definitely definitely sounds hold. I think and like it seems to be like a personality thing, like lifestyle job, like musician or like a chef or like ER doctors, like the type of people who are very good at like handling when the world like people who are really good when the things are crashing down, but then they yeah, can't handle yeah, normal, sure. but then they can't handle normalcy. I'm sure you must right. know those people. Well, yeah, I mean, well, that's part of it. It's like, uh, I mean, even I just did an interview with Frank Turner the other day. and he, you know, I, yeah, It was he said, really good, by the way. Thank you. And he, I he love, said that, yeah, that like band. in that, he said, um, what was he saying about uh, when you go on tour, that one of the, the, the immediate functions that you have to learn and get comfortable with is like when something happens, you need to like immediately let it go because you need to basically give up that sense of control as quick as you can uh, and realize that you don't have the power over the situation and acquiesce to it. Um, and that was one of the hardest things for me to, to give up. And then like, sometimes, you know, you're in a tour mode for so long, you get home and you're like, Oh my God, I'm the most dysfunctional motherfucker ever because I have no control over anything anymore. Like I, I've given up control, you know, <laughs> so it's, it's a hard really- readjusting especially now with kids like to go on tour and like have that like freedom and then come home and like uh one of the greatest things about kids is it destroys your ego like it doesn't matter yeah. what you do they don't give a shit what you do or how cool you are like even like michael jordan's kids just be like whatever dad yeah you know it doesn't matter who you are or what you and it's universal and it's like like i just like whenever i have like a like a big moment like a big guest in the podcast like i was like i had just put one out today with um griffin newman which is like a really nice. huge fan of big deal and like i was talking to my wife about it and then of course my three-year-old comes in and just like shit farts and we all start laughing and, and then <laughs> right. like all right not nothing out of it not it doesn't matter but like so is that hard like to maybe you have that place where you can go be like important to people somewhere and then you go home you're like all right dad change my diaper uh, no, I think I kind of like it. Um, it sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's more of like, I think it's like, again, it's it's the actual physiological function that's the most difficult for me. It's like, when you're a parent, you know, whether you like it or not, the house is waking up between six and seven, you know? Like, sorry, that's it now. And, you know, and I got to a point where I'm like, if I'm not asleep by like 11 o'clock, like, I'm kind of fucked tomorrow and I'm going to be like a worse parent you know so you get in these modes like that and then all of a sudden oh hey we're doing five days of mercy union we're doing bars and small clubs most nights we're playing at 10 or 11 you know so where I'm like very normally 
you know, in full on like, you know, Will Farrell, Always Sunny in Philadelphia, <laughs> Stone, yeah. zonked out, fucking not trying to think about anything land. And I'm like getting myself like ready to go on stage, you know? Uh, and then, you know, getting back and, you know, breaking down at one in the morning and getting in Ooh. the van and going somewhere. And, you know, I'm accustomed to waking up at six and I find myself going to sleep at like three and the guys I'm with are used to sleeping in all day. So, you know, I wake, like I can't even sleep past like seven thirty eight, like the first couple yeah. nights on a tour. Cause you know, I'm just predisposed not to. So that is the hardest part for me these days. And even, you know, when I used to come home from a gaslight tour and I was just, you know, with my, my, wife or you know then girlfriend you know i basically was like yo i'm on this couch for like the next 36 hours don't fuck with me you know it was like yeah like this, this is my tv i'm playing nba live i'm not putting a shirt on i'm you know gonna order fat boy takeout and and like fuck it i'm just i'm here and like so i you know i learned to like detox in that way and of course you know i could get home at you know 4 30 in the morning and they'll be pulling my eyes open at six. And and I'm just like so committed to my kids and guilty where like I'm going to get up because I want to see them. And I want and I don't want to be like like you said, I recognize the fact that they have no idea what the fuck I was doing. And the only thing they're going to remember is if the I was happy to see him or if I went back upstairs and went to sleep, you know. So, you know, I try to take one for the team and, uh, you know, be the good guy in those of instances but it is is hard um the actual like validation of like playing live and feeding off like honestly i can truly and honestly tell you that i don't think that's part of it for me it's like it's not where i've ever really found the validation for this you know um like if people are at a show and enjoying themselves and we're all part of like this great unified experience like i really have no need for someone to tell me about it or tell me that i was good or something like that like it actually makes me more uncomfortable probably than it makes me feel good i feel guilty almost where i'm like all right don't do i have to say something nice to you now (laughs) (laughs) yeah because like like the hanging is you don't want to buy a present buys you a present you're like oh man now i'm into you i'm into you for something you know oh that's such a good way to put it yeah and i mean like my like i always like i guess for me like the podcasting replaced uh like that version of what the scene was when i was younger uh right 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 but uh in that sense but like for me all when i was younger like the podcast was uh, i mean i'm the scene uh as much as like i've loved the music and all the stuff when we're going that looking back if i really look back at my more favorite memories like i really just like the hang and like i i yeah. guess i like uh and then you know on a deeper level it's like oh i just really love or need or crave to constantly find this need to connect with people emotionally and the music is like such a yeah way place where because if you like hardcore is like you know very hyper masculine and like very well like, yeah it's, yeah i think it's funny you say that because i actually had a memory um and that's one of the things I love about the last couple months is like, you know, it's turned off sports for me. It's turned off a lot of things and sort of opened up some doors I needed to walk down, honestly. And, uh, you know, it's almost like I think in a way I've like emotionally used music 
to feel a certain way I needed to feel. Oh my god! And it's me almost too. like so. So it's like I remember the very first show I ever played. I was in a band called Dilemma. We had two cover songs and one original, and we opened up for a Nirvana cover band <laughs> at the singer of the Nirvana cover band's house. That was my first show. You know, I was maybe twelve or something. And we played Bro Him by Pennywise, A-Bomb by SNFU, and then had one original. And, you know, we played the show. I had a slight inclination that I was good at drums, a little. Because it had seemed then that, like, the people in my band were impressed that someone as young as me, like, could play the way I was. So I was on to something. I was like, oh, wait, like, am I actually good at something? Because sports didn't pan out for me. And I wasn't like your typical good looking, you know, younger kid. I was always a little awkward and weird. And, you know, so I never sat in. And and I remember a key, like so specifically uh, going outside of that show and like sitting by myself in this house's front yard. And it, And it's like a glaring thing to me where I'm like, oh, like I've been this from the start. You know what I mean? From the first show to Gaslight playing in front of like 3,000 people, I'm going to find a way to like feel strange and isolate myself. Um, like it, it happened the first show, it happened that. But I remember, and I even remember a name, I barely knew the girl. She was a guy named Eric Cuda's older brother, Jill, or older sister, Jill, who I barely knew. But she like came up to me when I was at that porch and like talked to me for a minute and said we were good. And I was like, I think there was something about that conversation right there where I was like, this is my way. Like, this is going to be the only way for me. You know what I mean? Like I had yeah. seen no, no other avenue for me to even like get that at all. Um, and, and I feel like I started like doing shows and promoting shows and starting bands and doing bands and, Luckily, I had the innate love of music, so I didn't have to fake that. You know what I mean? But oh, sure. To be real, like, there is always uh, uh, an emotionally functional part of all this for me where, like, I needed the community that I was going to get from putting the work into that stuff. Like, I desperately needed it. Um, oh, yeah. And I'm, and I'm glad I found it. And, and I still... And the same... Uh, feeling of of that insecurity and being alone is the same thing like driving me to do podcasts and different things like that now you know um yeah it's it's strange you really uh in a way you never you're still the same fucking 12 year old you were right <laughs> yeah oh my god it's so true it's funny you're saying that and like and it's so funny because i remember like going like hardcore shows or whatever and like get like and but like and secretly being like oh my god I know we're all supposed to be like machismo right now but I was like really excited to dance I I just I'm not good at it but I just like to like I love weddings because I like to dance right. but there was no like appropriate avenue to just go dance but a hardcore show was like we would mosh and like critique but like it's just I remember being like secretly being like oh man we get to dance tonight but you weren't allowed to say it and like right. Uh, but, and we're all like super hyper macho masculine, but like simultaneously like a really odd vulnerability because it's like, well, I guess more like when you got more extremo because that was attached like and stuff like that. We're like, it's like, oh, it's cool because like Jeff from Thursday is like singing about shit yeah, about yeah. like death, but he's screaming, so it's okay. And no offense yeah. to Thursday, I fucking love them. I, but I, that was but like at that age. Yeah. 
That was yeah. a misconception about that, though, is like, yes, there were some people coming to those shows and moshing who were, you know, interested in nothing but the violence and the machismo and the same guys who played sports and got girls. But I'd say the lion's share of those people were ones where the show ended and them and their three friends went and sat at a diner, sat in a basement together. Yep. You know what I mean? And and kept reconnecting. You know, it really was, in a way, like a, a safe haven for, for uncomfortable little white kids for like a long time. Yeah, and it probably still is, I guess. You know? I, oh, yeah. I'm just and not it, young it, anymore. <laughs> that's actually how I met the Folly guys. I was like 18 and I booked a show with them. And then they, we went to the diner. And now I'm 35 and my dear friend one of my a group of friends who we still go to shows with amanda is married to jeff and they have two kids so it's uh, just like awesome. does yeah. that small world like i still have friends from that world and like the sure. music is and we still talk about those albums from like of course you know we also listen to the same music from from that age that period and some new stuff as well but it's and i know it's it's so funny it was such a, it's such a great thing I'm, i hope well, I don't know. Hopefully in the next year we'll be able to have a scene again, but we'll see if that happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that, that's uh, par for the court. Oh, yeah, who, who knows right now? All I know is uh, I, I missed out by not learning how to play a, acoustic guitar. Uh, oh, I yeah. I'd have, I'd have an IG live feed just filled with, with stuff right, right now. I, I can't thank you enough for your time. And um, where could uh, people find you online? Uh, just I think I'm Benny Horowitz 1. On Twitter, some inactive account was before me. I think I'm just myself on Instagram, Benny Horowitz. I don't have a Facebook or anything. Uh, I skipped Mercy that Union. one. Mercy Union. Yeah, yeah, Mer- yeah, Mercy Union. Going off track um, and uh, tune-up. New stuff. Going off track podcast and tune-up podcast. Yeah, all that stuff. <laughs> Didn't mean to promote for you. I just I took yeah. notes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the fucking worst at this stuff. Man. No, man. <laughs> ah, thanks so much. Yeah. I'll, I'll, let, I'll, I'll, I'll let you get I got kids. I got to do the same thing. So I'll, I'll let you know before it goes right. out. But thanks for your time. Yeah. This was uh, this is such a treat. Cool, man. Thanks, Chris. Have a good one, man. Have a good night.